hi, greetings. Uh, come on in, grab a seat for this deeply awkward opening. I get now why podcasters like Ashley Flowers and the Red-Handed Mavens have a formula opening. Otherwise, you find yourself babbling like this. So, hi, Crime Handers, I'm Saruti Flowers, and this is Here Happened. Nope, I have no formula yet. So if you're new here, my name is Kate, I'm a journalist based in South Africa, and this is my new baby podcast, It Happened Here. It has been a long week. I mean, they're all long weeks these days, right? But especially in South Africa, we've had some scary and dramatic scenes of political and civil unrest. There's been political opportunism, and there's been genuine desperation. So if you're international and wondering what the hell is going on in South Africa this week, we don't know either. On a slightly more positive note, I love my country, I love my fellow South Africans, I think we've come through worse than this, and the fear and the tension will hopefully subside soon. A second personal bit of good news is that I am finally registered for a vaccine. They just opened up for my age group and I jumped on those links and you cannot stick that needle in me soon enough. And the final bit of barrier, standing between you and the actual crime of this true crime podcast, is just a quick few thanks. It's been quite a week of growth for this podcast, and I've had some wonderful messages from people to say that they are listening, that they like what they're hearing, and as a couple of people have now pointed out, they are not imaginary which means I'm going to have to find another way to refer to this not-a-figment-of-my-imagination, very real and growing set of listeners. In particular, a wee shout-out to Molly, who got in touch on Insta, and Lizzie on Facebook. If you're on social media and are so inclined, we would love a follow on those platforms. But that is more than enough waffle, because I have an absolutely infuriating head-scratcher of a case for you, with more sidetracks and disputed details than any of your dark, little, true-crime-loving hearts could ever desire. This is episode 6 of It Happened Here, Burial Above Ground, The Fluckfontein Murders. Honestly, my own alternative working title for this episode is What the Actual Fluck, because the crime itself is a hell of a thing. People lost their lives in a grisly way, and I'm not going to say that anything is a bigger tragedy than that, but one level down from that is the travesty of how this case was handled. And if you're anything like me, the investigation and prosecution of this case is going to drive you to drink. But I will sound off about that in due course. Let's start in 2018, in an area called Fluckfontein. There are at least two places with that name in South Africa, one in a province called Mpumalanga and another south of Johannesburg. It's the second one that I want you to imagine yourself in today. To get there, you drive out from downtown Joburg on the M1 and maneuver your way to Route 553, the Golden Highway as it's colloquially known. That name, as I understand it, is a reference to the gold mining history of the area It's certainly not because the area is particularly grand. Fluckfontein is a regular working-class suburb with little brick houses and sandy yards. It's the kind of place where you know your neighbours by name and by sight. 
But in October 2018, no one has seen the Koza family from 4192 Ibis Crescent for a few days. 4192 is a single-story house. It's painted both white and cream because it's in the middle of a repaint. It has a small front yard with a tree and a bigger backyard behind the house. The property is ringed with wire fencing and a metal gate. There are quite a few people who call this property home. Mbali Koza is the homeowner, and she lives there with a long-term boyfriend, Fita Kupe, and her sister, Dudu Koza. Dudu's kids, Numfondo, Loyando, Subong Konke, also live there, and Numfondo herself has two kids, Krabo and Kaniso. I know I've just dumped a shitload of names on you. Don't panic. The relationships between them will clear up as we go along. What you do need to know is not who was whose auntie, but that this was one big, multi-generational family sharing their space, splitting the household costs and their childcare duties. It's very common in South Africa for multiple generations of the same family to share a home, a situation which I don't think will be unfamiliar to any listeners from other developing countries. It's also common if you have the space to rent out your back rooms to friends or family members or to bring in a tenant for some extra income. Andre Kosa is one such tenant. That's Kosa, C-O-S-S-A, not Koza, K-H-O-Z-A, like the family who live in the main house. Andre lived in a back room on the property. He came and he went as he pleased and he didn't have to go through the main house to access his room. But all the same, he was getting pretty concerned about his landlords by the end of the month. Not least of all, because of the increasingly alarming odour emanating from behind the closed doors and windows of the main house and another back room. Still, he was trying to mind his own business, and it wasn't like the house was totally abandoned. He'd seen Sibosiso Koza around. Sibosiso was part of the family, and he also stayed in a back room. And then around the 27th of October, Fita also arrived home. That's Mbali, the homeowner's long-term boyfriend. He'd apparently been on a trip to neighbouring Zimbabwe, and he tells Andre that the woman and the kids are all away in Durban. Andre also speaks to Sibusiso about the smell, and was told that they'd used poison to kill rats. But he was beginning to think that's a crap ton of rats for such a stink. Soon, the neighbours were also starting to complain, and to ask, quite insistently, where were Mbali, Dudu, Numfundo, and the kids? Another cousin, Ningi Koza, was also trying to reach them. This comes from an interview which she had given to Drum Magazine. This article and all my other sources are linked in the show notes, as always. Ningi had received a strange message that Nomfondo was driving to Cape Town to attend to a family crisis. But she's family, and she knows nothing about any crisis. She tried to reach Nomfondo, and then Dudu, and then Mbali, calling and texting all three of the adult women in the household, but their phones were off and the messages went unanswered. Ningi was starting to imagine all kinds of horrors, So she goes to the home on October 29th. Some publications say that it's a neighbour who breaks in or that someone called the cops about the smell, but Drum Magazine has a primary source on record, and this is how she says it went down. 
she climbs over the fence and pries open a window, and she is hit by a smell of, quote, rotten flesh, and she says there were flies buzzing all over. So Ningi and her neighbor manage to reach Fita, the boyfriend, and demand he come open up. When she and the neighbors finally get inside, they find a horrifying and frankly bizarre scene, even to us true crime fans who think we've heard it all. The main bedroom of the house and a second room round the back are both covered in sand and flies. This is not a light dusting I'm talking about. No, I mean red building sand piled a foot deep inside the rooms with all the chairs and furniture and curtains and personal belongings still in place, like a tide of red sand had flooded the rooms. In the sand are the decomposing bodies of Mbali, Dudu, Numfundo, Krabo, who's just 11, Lianda is 7, Kayiso is 2, and Sbonga Konke, also 2. Four of the victims are in one of the rooms and three in another. There were various wounds, including blunt force head wounds and sharp penetrating wounds, but I will tell you about the methods when we get to the court case. Seven members of the Koza family have been murdered and then covered in sand that was brought in by the bucket and wheelbarrow load by Sibusiso. We know it was him because the neighbours watched him do it, for days leaving up to the eventual discovery of bodies. I also read that he got some of the neighbourhood kids to bring him extra sand. It's not the most sophisticated disposal method, but it's about to get weirder. Because after that chat with Andre, the other tenant, who was asking about the smell, Siposisa had also tried to use cleaning fluid and bleach poured directly onto the sand to try and counter the smell. He'd also bought air freshener and Doom, which is a brand of insect spray, to try deal with the swarms of flies that had found their way in. Extrapolating from the last sightings of the family members on about the 18th or 19th of October, the seven bodies had been there at least 10 days. And for three days living up to that discovery, Fita had been living in the home, not asking where the family is or why the main bedroom is locked or what the fuck is up with all the sand and flies. Look, it's really not my style to harp on about the gross details, but I just can't wrap my head around this. The neighbors and the journalists who flocked to the scene described the stink like it's a malevolent force creeping its way further and further down the street, even after the bodies have been removed by authorities. And I will come back to this point about the authorities and the journalists and the body removal in a bit, but this seems like a very good time for a slight change of tack. So let's get to know the two remaining members of the household, Mbadi's live-in partner, 61-year-old Fita, and 27-year-old Sibusiso Koza. Fita was well-known in those parts. He'd been Mbali's partner for some 15 years, but Sibusiso was a newcomer. He'd recently found the family through Facebook and, like, and had lived there just three months at the time of the murders. Still, he was well-liked and even kind of a big deal around the neighbourhood, he was the son of a deceased Koza brother and a young doctor who had several degrees to his name and had even worked in New York. That's 
a pretty impressive life to anyone, let alone the kids of Flakfontein, where for many, just resisting the urge to give up on high school and go find work would be an achievement. And Sibusiso had achieved all of that, despite growing up in an orphanage without family to support him. At least, that's the story he'd given the causes. All of which turns out to be a complete fabrication. You see, his real name was Vusi Ernest Mobaso. He wasn't a cosa, he wasn't a doctor, he wasn't even South African, or an orphan. By all accounts, it was an excellent con. He'd known all of the, about the extended family members and their stories. He had compelling details. According to a relative called Toko, he knew everything about us, including deceased family members. That's why we never questioned him. He, and then this quote is also from that drum article which I mentioned. He told me his father was my late brother Musa Kosa, and I believed him because my late brother had lots of girlfriends and many children. He was also charming and helpful. He'd do the dishes and help out around the house. He fetched water and even cooked. He was, she said, the perfect son I never had. Soon after this, Mbali invited him to her house in Johannesburg at 4192 Ibis Crescent. You might be thinking, how did they fall for this? But really, it isn't that unusual in South Africa to have long-lost family crop up. This is important context, I think, so for the not-so-imaginary international listeners, here's your South African History 101 for the day. Apartheid policies, like the Group Areas Act, meant that the country was carved up according to race. Most of the so-called black homelands were located far away from the major cities and good job opportunities. And you had to have a reason, like a job, to live in the townships around the cities or near the large mines, both of which benefited from exploiting black labor. If you were a black person during apartheid, you had to have a passbook that essentially gave you permission to be in certain areas. You could be stopped by the apartheid police demanding to see your passbook, and not having one could mean arrest or worse. If you have listened to any of Trevor Noah's stand-up comedy, he talks about this from time to time. It was a critical element of his experience of growing up, because his mum was black and his father was white, and so they were not supposed to be living in the same place, let alone married, and making gorgeous Trevor Noah-shaped babies. But wow, I really am getting sidetracked. The shortest version of this complex history is that there were loads of systemic reasons that families were separated. There was also lots of migrant labour, where Dad perhaps travelled up to Joburg to work on the mines, leaving his wife and kids behind. Or both parents went away for work, and raising their kids fell to granny in the homelands. Many men had two families, one in the homelands and one in the townships. So discovering a previously unheard of sibling or nephew or whatever is not desperately unusual. Oh yeah, that's where I was going with this whole side story. The con that Sibusiso was a hitherto unknown family member was completely believable in the context of post-apartheid South Africa. If you're interested, there are at least two Facebook profiles I can find for this man that are still up on Facebook in his fake name and persona. Wait, did I say fake book or Facebook? You know what I mean. Right, back on track. Despite the false identity matter, both men were arrested pretty quickly. 
that's con artist and talented Mr. Ripley enthusiast, Sibusiso, a.k.a. Ernest, and the world's least curious boyfriend with apparently zero sense of smell, Fita. They were both in custody by the 1st of November, and they make their first court appearance by the 5th of November, where they appear in the Lanasia Regional Court to plead to the charges. This is the first step in our justice system. It's also technically when a suspect's name and likeness can be released to the media. But by that stage, a lot of the protocol for investigations, legal proceedings and media coverage had gone straight out of the window. For example, Ernest's fake name and likeness were put out almost immediately as part of an appeal for people to look out for him. There was also an extraordinary amount of access granted to the media, both at the scene and in court. For example, there are photos of people on site in the house wearing those blue overalls that you wear for collecting forensic evidence. They're not actually identified as investigators, but I'm making the obvious leap here. But literally the next day, there are photos of family and neighbors digging through the sand, sweeping it up and carrying it out the house. The next day. So much for securing and cataloging evidence. And you have to think, who is taking those photos? There were clearly photojournalists on site. I will actually share some of those images with attribution. Look out for them on social platforms. And then there is the impromptu press conference held on site on the 30th. Remember, this is the day after the bodies are discovered, and the Community Safety MEC is holding a press conference on site. MEC stands for Member of the Executive Council, and it's a provincial government position, which is kind of a mid-tier politician. As a journalist, I am absolutely, definitely not admitting to this at all, but it's the C-list of politicians. Like when you know a celebrity from that... Sure, they did once, but you have to look it up to remind yourself. It's the political equivalent of that. But the MEC of Community Safety has arrived at the house the day after the discovery, and along with journalists and neighbours and her assistants and a few paramedics, they've all gone traipsing through the house. This is your first giant red flag that this investigation and prosecution is about to go south quickly. We get a real sense of that in the courts. As I said, the first court appearance for both suspects was the 5th of November, and the charges are seven counts of premeditated murder, that's for both of them, and three counts of rape, and that's for Ernest. And I know you're going, wait, Kate, you didn't say anything about rape. I promise I'm getting there. On the 12th of November, they have a bail hearing, and here Ernest, formerly known as Supercisor, tells the court he feels threatened by Fita, who he says intends to kill him, requesting to be kept separately from Fita. So Ernest goes off to Krugersdorp Correctional Facility, and Fita is in a Joburg prison. Remember the name Krugersdorp, because that's where I'm taking you next week. There's another hearing that's delayed by a power outage, and isn't particularly significant, except to say that there is a petition presented there by the community asking that bail be denied. On the 28th of November, we're back in court, and this is the bombshell appearance that adds both detail and confusion to this whole picture. 
because Ernest will claim that he was not only forced to do this crime by Fita, but that it was a plan years in the making. This is his version. The version of a con man, mind you, but this is what he says. In 2015, he was training to be a teacher when he was drugged, kidnapped and transported to Cape Town. Here he was forced into participating in various criminal activities, including packing narcotics. And he is told at this point, he says, that there is this big job he needs to do in Joburg. And he will need to adopt the name of Sibusiso Koza, befriend the Koza family on Facebook, get himself invited to live with them, and then kill them. Right? Still with us? Okay. There's another weird interlude to the story of kidnapping and crime in which he escapes from the kidnappers, is arrested, runs away, writes some letters, and ends up back on the con and kill job. This bit isn't very clear, and honestly, I have tried to find a written version of his statement, but I'm coming up empty. I don't think his timeline holds up to even the vaguest scrutiny, but now it's 2018, and he says he meets Fita in Joburg, who confirms these con and kill instructions. He also says that Fita tells him how to do these killings, saying that he was given a hammer and told to strike each of them in the head twice. Ernest also admits to suffocating the children. So the two methods of murder are head trauma and suffocation. The claims of the puncture wounds I mentioned earlier are not repeated here. And this is the grisly bit with sexual assault trigger warnings, please. Ernest says that Fita ordered him to rape the children before killing them. Here is another point of reporting confusion. There's so much of this, it's really starting to reflect quite badly on my profession, but it is what it is. Some sources suggest that three women were raped, suggesting the adult victims, but there is also a court record of the, quote, youngest of the victims, end quote, being raped. It's both unclear and incredibly distressing. We also have nearly no clarity on when the victims really died, because the state and Ernest disagree on the timeline. On the basis of this version of events, Ernest says that he intends to plead not guilty, insisting that he was forced to kill and only did so in fear of his own life. Fita, for his part, denies these accusations. If you're yelling at your podcast app right now, but what does the evidence say? Save your breath. We have plenty more outrage to survive still. A court date of 4 December 2018 is postponed, and we hear that this is because Ernest is sick in hospital. A trial date of 12 December is also postponed because Fita's lawyer is having some sort of personal crisis. This is December in South Africa, and honestly, the whole country just about shuts down in the weeks leading up to Christmas, which is also our big summer holiday time. So the case is rescheduled for January 2019, and both are held in custody over that time. On January 18th, though, Ernest reportedly takes his own life, hanging himself with his shoelaces. I say reportedly because there is a whole bunch of weird details here, including claims that he had several other injuries. And there's the fact that he'd been moved to a police holding cell in Cape Town. Remember, that's like 12 hours drive away. Police claim that they were investigating his claims of being abducted, 
but I can't see why that would necessitate him going along for the ride in the middle of a murder trial. To be clear, I'm not pulling the Epstein card. We just have many, many unanswered questions around this death. In Feb, Fita appears in court and is once again denied bail because he is a Zimbabwean national and they are worried that he will skip over the border before they can stop him. And then the news goes quiet. And it's only in June of 2019 that the National Prosecuting Authority, or the NPA, withdraws all criminal charges against Fita, citing a lack of evidence. You see, the confession by Ernest that implicated or accuses Fita cannot be used as evidence against him. It's, at this point, untested hearsay, testimony that has no chance of being tested now that the accuser is dead. And here's your final twist, my lovelies. The investigators have not enough DNA evidence or witnesses to have a reasonable expectation of proving their case against Vita. I repeat, because you should be as incredulous as I was when I first read this. The state says it does not have enough DNA evidence from a crime which, might I remind you, involved seven deceased people. Where are the autopsy reports and the forensics on that? No one seems to have the foggiest idea. There's also reference to, to telephone records showing that the two accused were in contact leading up to the murder. But we have no further details on that. And Fita himself admits to sleeping and cooking in that house while the bodies were decomposing in the next room. Reported in the Sowetan, which is a newspaper here, a spokesperson for the NPA says, Witnesses who gave statements to the police could not link Coupe, as in Fita, to the murder, or describe the role he had played in the murders or rapes of the deceased. All we have as a state is a confession left by the deceased, which the law prohibits us from using. End quote. The surviving members of the Koza family and the fathers of the murdered children were not told by the NPA that these charges would be dropped. They heard it along with the rest of the country. And the community of Flakfontein held a demonstration in protest of this decision. But ultimately, Fita walks free. This crime is horrific. Yes. But the handling of this case is disgusting. My personal feeling is that literally no pro protocol was followed because of the overwhelming amount of evidence. I know that that sounds counterintuitive, and I admit that I am totally surmising here, but I think that they thought they had it in the bag so obviously that they let a politician and a bunch of journalists and half the bloody neighborhood just wander through their crime scene. That's the only thing I can think of. Unless you have another explanation? I can't believe that heads didn't figuratively roll in the police and the prosecutor's office after this debacle. But seemingly, they didn't. And then a handy global pandemic swept in six months later to distract us for the next 18 months or something. I am seldom at a loss for words and explanation for things. Even when I have to make some leaps, I'm naturally inclined to hypothesize but I've just got nothing here. So that's it. Thanks for listening. Find us on social. 
Also, thanks to Samantha Render, who helped me research this mess. It Happened Here is a Ready Freddy production, written and presented by me, Kate Thompson-Davey. Mm-hmm.